Well, back, way back in 1998, uh, Hollywood released a seemingly lighthearted and engaging little comedy drama called Pleasantville. And in that movie, Pleasantville, a teenage brother and sister get magically zapped into their television and they end up back in this old black and white sitcom called Pleasantville. Now, the town of Pleasantville, around this, which the sitcom is uh, focused, the town of Pleasantville is this idealized American town straight out of the 1950s. It's presented as this wholesome, uh, moral, virtuous little community. <clears throat> but as the brother and sister soon discover, the brother and sister got zapped into Pleasantville through their TV, uh, the people of this fictional town are, well, they are ignorant about many things of life. Uh, in Pleasantville, there is an absence of things that are either exciting or thought-provoking or dangerous. So, for example, the firemen in Pleasantville spend their days getting cats out of trees because fire doesn't exist in Pleasantville. And neither does rain or storms or literature or art or sex. And those things don't exist in Pleasantville until they are introduced to Pleasantville by this teenage brother and sister. First, the teenage brother, who's played by Toby Maguire, gives away a book that he has brought with him. And the man who reads this book, he's so enamored with it because all of the books in Pleasantville, although on the outside they look like regular books, on the inside they're all blank. So he reads this book and he's enamored with it. And then the teenage sister, played by Reese Witherspoon, also gives something away. She goes out with one of the high school boys there in Pleasantville, and she gives him herself. And with those two acts, the reading of a book and the engaging in sexual intimacy, color is introduced into that black and white world. Both, both the man who reads the book and the teenage boy who engages in sex are then shown in real world color against this black and white existence that is Pleasantville. And those two people, they're just the beginning. Eventually, many of the town's people are reading and they are painting and teenagers are going down to Lover's Lane and the town is exploding in color. Now, in the movie, there are some who resist. There are those who want the town to stay the way, things in the town to stay the way that they are. And most of those people in the movie are presented as either middle-aged white men who are hanging out down at the bowling alley, or, or they are these uptight housewives who are, who are overly concerned about propriety. But ultimately, even with the pushback from the black and whites in the movie, passion has been set free in Pleasantville. And there's no going back. And so as the movie closes with this montage of all these citizens now enjoying life in their world of color... The movie's message is clear. Free your passion. Free your desires. That's the way to bring vibrancy and color into your life. Now, there is some truth in the message of that movie. Literature, art, passion sexual love, these are powerful aspects of our lives in this world. They do often color our world in a dynamic and often wonderful way. Those things are our gifts from God, who according to 1 Timothy 6, 17, richly provides us with everything to enjoy. But also in the message of that movie, there is a dangerous delusion. 
And that delusion is that real life and true delight is found in letting our desires, our passions just run free. Just run free. Restraint in Pleasantville becomes the enemy. It is presented as the old black and white way. Freedom, color in our life, is promised through liberating our passions, liberating our desires. And in promoting that message, Pleasantville is guilty of a serious error, a fallacy common to humanity since the time of our first parents. You see, Pleasantville's message is no different than what seduced Eve as she stood before the forbidden tree back there in Genesis chapter 3. Remember, in that moment, Eve had desires. We read in the text, she saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise. And so she had these desires, and then she just followed those desires. She just took of its fruit and ate. And she did so because in that moment... She believed that her desires were leading her to greater joy, greater delight, and greater fullness of life. However, we know the story, right? The reality of that moment for her was just the opposite. Instead of finding more vibrance, she and her husband who was with her, who also followed his desires and he ate, they both lost the beauty of their existence. Instead of a more full life, they found a more empty one. Instead of finding more delight, they discovered pain and loss. You see, just letting our desires run free, just letting their desires run free led them in the opposite direction of where they truly wanted to be. Just letting them run free led them in the opposite direction of where they wanted to be. And this is part of the reality of all human desires. Uh, For a moment, I want you to just think with me. Let's reflect on those words that I just quoted from Genesis chapter 3. The woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that it was desired to make one wise. Let's take a moment and just think about the woman's desires. Was there anything wrong with her desire for good food? What, was there anything wrong with her appreciating the aesthetics of the tree? Was there anything wrong with her desire to grow in wisdom? Was there anything wrong with those things? No, that's, that's the right answer. No, not at all. There isn't anything wrong with those. God created her with all of those abilities and all of those desires. God made our taste buds to enjoy things that taste good. He gave us eyes to see and appreciate beauty. He gave us minds that that delight to grow in knowledge and understanding. So you see, in and of themselves, the desires were not wrong. Instead, what was wrong and what was ultimately destructive for her, listen carefully, was following those desires outside of God's purpose and design for them. What was ultimately destructive for her was following those desires outside of God's purpose and design for them. Those desires were not to be fulfilled on that tree. There were all the kinds of trees in the garden, right? But they weren't to be fulfilled there at that tree. And this is what, this is what Pleasantville, like much of our culture, fails to see. They figure, well, if we have these desires, shouldn't we just run with them? Don't we just need to let them free? And they miss the design in our desires. 
There is a design for our desires. There is a place in which they thrive, in which they do bring color and delight and fullness to our lives. But that place isn't found in just letting them run free. Let me give you a helpful analogy. Fire is a gift, right? Fire is a gift. So sitting in our backyard around a fire pit, enjoying a nice summer evening, that's a blessing, right? It's a blessing. Fire and the fire pit's there to keep us nice and warm, gives you light, you can roast some marshmallows over it and make some s'mores, it's a, it's a great thing. But if that fire gets out of that fire pit, if a spark lands on your awning or in your dry grass and suddenly your whole backyard is engulfed in, engulfed in flame, what's happened? That good thing has become a destructive there's a place where the fire is supposed to be. And the same is true for our desires. There is a design for our desires and they are gifts from God, but they are gifts that we have to learn and understand how to use. Our hearts, especially in our youthfulness and our immaturity, need to be trained to see God's good design for our desire. And this is especially true with a desire that is at the heart of that movie, Pleasantville, our desire for sex. Sex is a gift from God. And our desire for it is not a bad thing. It was actually there in the beginning. In Genesis 2, God created the woman for the man, and he told the man to hold fast to his wife, to become one flesh with her, and they were both naked and unashamed. The first man and the first woman enjoyed the gift of intimacy, both emotionally and physically, a gift which their creator, God, had given to them. It was part of his good creation. But with the fall, that which was good was hijacked by our fallen hearts. God's good gift of sex became awkward and frustrating. It began to be used in self-serving and manipulative ways. It became a tool of exploitation. It became a source of shame and guilt. But here's, I want you to understand, that was never God's design for it. I said those things happen when we take the fire outside of the fireplace. Lose that which is good and wonderful, and instead we find something destructive and harmful. However, God in his grace wants to bring us back to that good place. He wants us to help, help us see and understand his design for, his, for our desires, his design for sex. He wants us to have wisdom for sex. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And we're going to do this as part of our continuing study of the book of Proverbs. This summer, we are learning to walk the way of wisdom with Jesus through the book of Proverbs. And thus, thus far, we've seen that this book is a gift from Jesus to help us, help us navigate the challenges of life We've seen it calling us, inviting us to the path of wisdom. We've talked about wisdom for our relationships and wisdom for our marriages and wisdom for our conversations, our words with others. But this morning, we're going to talk about how this book blesses us with wisdom for sex. And we're going to do that by looking specifically at chapter 5 of Proverbs. So if you haven't done so already, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn over to Proverbs chapter 5. Proverbs chapter 5. And let's begin with the opening words of this chapter. You see Proverbs chapter 5, verse 1. 
My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion and that your lips may guard knowledge. Now, looking here at chapter 5, verse 1, we see it opens with a very familiar refrain in the book of Proverbs. By this point in Proverbs, we've repeatedly seen this father addressing his son and calling him to this way of wisdom. And we've witnessed this repeatedly. We're only in chapter 5, but we've witnessed this repeatedly because the original audience of this book of Proverbs was a young man. That's the original focus of this book. It is the writings of a father addressing his son, and it's a father attempting to train his son in the way of wisdom. But here's the thing. This is not just any father attempting to train any son. Instead, this is actually a father who is a king. This is King Solomon attempting to lay down his wisdom for his son, who would be the future king of Israel. And so he is attempting to to train him, to instruct him in the wise ways of a leader, a good leader. A few weeks, we're actually going to talk about wisdom for leadership. and, And you can pray for me as I prepare that sermon, because the entire book is really aimed at that topic. Some of you are like, I don't know if I'm showing up that Sunday. We're going to be here a week and a half. But the entire book is aimed at that topic. This is actually a manual for wise leadership. Proverbs was a manual for training future kings. Now, because of that, because that's the original aim of this book, the book of Proverbs has a discernibly masculine tone. And that tone could lead some people who read this book to question whether or not this book's wisdom is really for them. And what I mean by that is they could raise this question, does the book of Proverbs in general, and this passage that we're going to look at in particular, really have anything to say to the women among us? I mean, it's originally aimed at a young man. Or, or what about those of us who aren't so young anymore? What about those of us who keep finding more and more gray hair, gray hair in their beard every week? What about us? Aimed at a young man who's going to be a leader. So what if if you don't have any desire or any opportunity for leadership? What about those who don't see themselves in this opening and often repeated refrain, my son? What do we do with this book? Well, here's the thing. As we read this refrain, we need to remember that that over and above this, this earthly father, an earthly son, there stands another father and another son. You see, this book and the wisdom that is in it is actually a gift from our heavenly Father given to us by his Holy Spirit and personifying his son, Jesus, who is our king. And so, as his followers, as followers of Jesus, we should desire to walk in the way that the son We should desire to walk by the Spirit in the wisdom of His Father and our Father, our God, our Savior. So, so this text, although it is speaking, Father speaking to His Son, is also really our Father speaking to all of us, giving wisdom to all of us, calling all of us to learn the way of Jesus, His Son, and learn to walk that way of wisdom with him in a way that should characterize us as followers of Jesus, our King. And what we're going to see in this chapter is that our Father 
is showing us how to live as followers of Jesus when it comes to this issue of sex. Our Father's desire, our Father's wisdom, is that we would learn his good design for our desires. His his wisdom is that we would gain skill for living when it comes to our desire for sex. Now remember, already throughout the study, we've talked about what wisdom is. Wisdom is skill for living. It's skill for living. It's It's not just knowing more stuff. Instead, it's being able to apply what we know skillfully in that moment, whatever moment we find ourselves. It is a skill for living. And that's what it's at the heart of this, this father's opening invitation here in verse 1. It's an invitation to gain skill for living life. But in this invitation, there's also a reminder that this skill will keep us from ruin. It will keep us from disaster. And that's what the father is saying there in verse 2, that you may keep discretion. That your lips may guard knowledge. <clears throat> As Pastor David made clear when he, he taught about wisdom's call, there, there is a path to ruin. There is a path to destruction. And, and wisdom is seeking to call the, the simple, to call the foolish away from that path. So, so she beckons them away from that path. She is calling them to walk her way, to follow her path, to walk away from those things that will harm, to walk away from those things that will shame, to walk away from those things that will destroy. She offers skill to walk the right path. <clears throat> and here, this father calls to his son. He, he warns his son, and our Heavenly Father is warning us about a path. That's the wrong path, a path that will destroy us. He's warning his son about a way that will actually lead to ruin and shame. And here's the thing. He's warning his son about it because this path that leads to ruin and shame is actually a deceptive path. It's a deceptive path. It's what I'll call this morning the deceptive way. The deceptive way. It's an enticing way. It's an alluring way. Our desires see this path and we say, yeah, let's head that direction. That looks really, really good. Let's take that path. And we see this in the way that the father describes this path to his son. Look at the text starting in verse 3. <laughs> Look what he says. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Here, the father in Proverbs, he warns his son about what he calls the forbidden woman. That's the way that the ESV brings it across. If you have a New King James Version, you see it says the immoral woman. Uh, the NIV and the New American Standard call it the adulteress. <clears throat> but in the Hebrew, the term that the father uses can actually be rendered as the strange woman. That's probably the most literal translation of the term that he's using. The strange woman. Now, as you study Proverbs, you see repeatedly in this book, the father warns his son against both the enticements of the prostitute and also the enticements of the promiscuous or the adulterous wife. <clears throat> but the terms that he uses to describe both of those types of women are just like what we find here. He uses the term strange and foreign. Strange and foreign. And, and the Hebrew words that he uses, strange and foreign, when they're used in the masculine, They describe those who are strangers, who are foreigners to the people and covenant of Israel. 
That, that's the typical rendering of these, these Hebrew words that the Father is using. They describe those people who were, who were on the outside. They were outside of God's covenant. They were outside of God's people. They were those who were strangers. They were those who were aliens. But here, what the Father does is he takes those terms, and he uses them in the feminine, and he uses them to describe certain women who might appeal to his son. But here's the thing. Please don't misunderstand what the Father is doing here. He is not commenting on the ethnicity or the nationality of the women that his son should either be pursuing or avoiding. This is not a xenophobic warning here in the text. Instead, what the father is doing is he is reminding his son about his son's covenant, his marriage covenant. He's using terminology that's aimed at reminding him about his wife, his spouse, the one that belongs to him and he belongs to her. And he's warning his son, don't go outside the one, after the one who's outside of that. Don't go after the one who is foreign to your marriage covenant, who is a, an alien to your marriage commitment, the one who should be a stranger to your marital bed. Don't walk the path towards that one. Don't go after the one outside of God's design for you. Because she's strange, she's foreign to God's design. And his father gives this warning because he, in his wisdom, understands that there's, a, there's an allurement in the forbidden. There's an allurement in the forbidden. One of the things that I found really fascinating in my study of Proverbs is that in this opening section of the book, the, the primer of Proverbs, that is chapters 1 through 9, we've talked about these first nine chapters kind of lay a foundation for the rest of the book. But in this primer of Proverbs, the first nine chapters, the father repeatedly addresses this very issue, this issue of sex. There are allusions to it in chapters 2, 3, and 4. There are lengthy discussions of it in chapters 6, 7, and 9. And here we have the entire chapter, chapter 5, focused in on this one issue. And I think the father spends so much time on this issue because he understands, he understands the power of our sexual desires and the danger in not understanding God's design for those desires. There is this allurement in the forbidden that calls out to our desire for sex. And that pull is strong. I mean, just look at the text here. Look at how he pictures it. Verse 3. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. Here, this father is describing a, a sensual enticement. He, he is using, and what I mean by this, he's using imagery that engages the senses. I mean, just picture the dripping of sweet honey, or, or the smooth touch of oil, not, not motor oil, but olive oil, probably perfumed with herbs and spices. It's an alluring picture. It's a, it's a sensually captivating picture. And, and this father is describing this strange and forbidden woman this way. She is enticing, but both physically and verbally. And he captures all of that by speaking of her, her lips, her speech, or literally her palate. There is a desire, he says, there's a desire to kiss her, to be with her, and then to hear the words that come from those lips. Words like the Father describes over in chapter 7. You don't have to turn there, just let me read this to you. This, over in chapter 7, the Father gives an example of the speech of the forbidden woman. And there in chapter 7, she says to the young man, listen to this. I had to offer sacrifices 
And today I've paid my vows. So now I've come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I've found you. And what she is saying there is don't feel guilty about what we're about to do. I already paid the offerings. I already paid the sacrifices. I've already paid my vows. We're good with God. He'll forgive us. And then she continues her invitation. I spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloe, cinnamon, Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. In other words, I've created a fantasy land for you, a place of luxury and sensual desires. Come and enjoy it with me. Come and fulfill your desires. You see, this father understands the allurement of the forbidden. And he knows, what I mean by he understands, he knows that it comes to us through our senses. It comes to us through our senses, through, through sight and touch and smell. We see and we want. We hear and it enters into our minds. This allurement comes in through our senses. But listen, it takes hold then in our minds. It enters through the senses, but it takes hold in our minds. We see sights of beauty and what do we do? We fantasize. We hear words of seduction and we start to rationalize. We start to think, well, what if? What if? What if my spouse looked like them? What if they were as attentive and kind and they just listened to me like, like this coworker of mine? What if my boyfriend or girlfriend and I could just do what, what our bodies desire to do? comes in through our senses, but then it settles in our minds. We fantasize, we rationalize, we justify where those desires want to take us. We justify our desires, and then we step onto the path. But what we will find on the path, this father makes it clear, is the opposite of what we think. The father tells his son that this situation is not what it appears It looks like sweet honey and smooth oil, but what you're really going to find is bitter wormwood and a sharp two-edged sword right through the heart. You see, what this father is doing, this loving father, is he's, he's pulling back the curtain and he's showing his son the reality of what he's really pursuing. And although it is alluring, although it is enticing, this father tells his son that he will find himself pursuing his own ruin and he will find himself doing so with one who is dancing along the path on her way to her own destruction. Look again at the text. Verse five. Her feet go down where? To death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life so she doesn't even stop and think about where she's going. Instead, her ways wander And she does not know it. Another way to translate the end of verse 6 is she staggers like a drunk down a crooked trail. Like someone who's staggering along just lost in their drunkenness. The the forbidden woman is just staggering along to her own ruin. Now again, please don't misunderstand this picture. This is not some misogynistic rant against women and their enticing sexuality. That's not the father's aim here. Instead, this is a loving warning against pursuing that which is outside of God's design. 
Following, here's the thing, brothers and sisters, men, women, all of us, following the allure of the forbidden is like trying to follow a staggering drunk for directions. It's like joining a dancing partner who is blindfolded and on the edge of a cliff and saying, why don't you lead? It's folly. And it's folly that will lead to your ruin. And so starting in verse 7, the father begins to describe what that ruin will look like. And again here, he calls his son to heed his wisdom. But notice the change here in the plural in verse 7. And now, oh sons. Listen to me. So this is, he's not just his son. He's like, everybody listen to this. Listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. And what is, what is the father's counsel to, to all? What is our father's counsel to all of us? Verse 8. Keep your way away from her. And do not go near the door of her house. In other words, do not toy around with the forbidden. Don't, don't flirt with it. Don't, don't entertain it. Don't fantasize about it and run around with it in your mind. Don't spend your afternoons taking long, lazy walks on the beach with a forbidden woman. Don't do it. Well, why not, Ryan? Well, look at the text. Just look at what you're flirting with. Verses 9 and 10, look at the text. The father says, again, do not go near the door of her house, verse 9, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Let strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of the So he tells his son, what he's telling his son here is, you are flirting with giving away the very best of your life. You're flirting, away with giving, you're flirting with giving away the best of your life. And see, what this father is revealing here is that those who, who often pursue sexual immorality often become used and then tossed aside by those in that immoral culture. They are preyed upon by brutal men and unscrupulous women, people who will take your money, who will take your vitality, who will take your emotional commitment. Many of you know what I'm talking about. They will take your emotional commitment. They will take your best. And then they will leave you empty. You're flirting with giving away the best of your life. And in addition to that, this father is warning his son that he's flirting with looking back on his life with regret. Look at verse 11. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and your body are consumed. And you say, Here, here's the son's future lament because he didn't listen to the loving counsel of his father. And you say, how I hated discipline. And my heart despised reproof. He's, he's looking back in regret. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers and climbed my ear to my instructors. I am now on the brink of utter ruin. And they assembled congregation. Here's this son, filled with regret, full of shame, all of which could have been avoided. If what? If he had just listened. Just listened. Here, his father and our father are helping us to play it forward. You know what I mean by that? Play it forward. And here's the thing. These words here, they're for both men and women, both young and old, both single and married. And in these words, what God is doing is he's helping us all to play it forward. 
Showing us the danger and just letting our desires run after whatever appeals to them in that moment. This is where it goes. God is showing here, us here the reality of another Proverbs. Proverbs 16, 25. That proverb says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. There is a way that seems right to a man. Oh, that looks good. But its end is the way to death. And that's the message here. God has given us, he's given us this gift of sex. He has created us with sexual desires. But we need to follow his design for those desires. To to ignore his design. To, To pursue that which is outside of that design, that which is foreign to that design, that which is a stranger to that design, that which is forbidden by that design, that is absolute folly. It's not the way of wisdom. It does not show a skill for living. No matter what our culture says, it does not show a skill for living life. Instead, it is an invitation to our own destruction. Its end is the way to death. And as I've been studying this and thinking about this passage, beloved, as we walk through this, it it just stands as a powerful word against the advice of our culture. Can you see that here? I mean, it stands as a powerful word against the advice of our culture. Our culture says, love is love. Love is love. By which they really mean, do whatever you want, right? Do whatever feels good to you. Do whatever you desire. I mean, you have those desires. Why not act on them? Love is love. But what they fail to see and what sometimes we fail to see, what so many refuse to acknowledge, is that there is a God in the heavens. God in heavens who loves us, who made us, and who has laid out the very best for us. We were created by his will and according to his design. But when we try to live against that design, it's like a fish trying to ride a bicycle. You know, it's foolishness. It's folly. Here's the thing. I'm going to tell you something you, you probably never could have guessed. A fish wasn't designed to ride a bicycle. A fish wasn't designed to ride a bicycle. It won't thrive up there on the bicycle. So well, what's going to happen? It's going to die. But put that same fish in the water, and what happens there? Oh, man, everything changes for that fish. Because it wasn't designed for the bicycle. It's designed for the water. And that's where this father then points this son. He points him away from the bicycle into the delightful water. He points him to what I'll call the delightful way. Look at, look at verses 15 and following. This father says to his son, go and drink. Go and drink. Drink water from your own cistern. Flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad in the streets? Streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed. Rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight and be intoxicated always in her love. 
Here, this father is actually encouraging his son to pursue his sexual desires. He's telling him, go get drunk on sexual love. But do so where it's the very best. Do so with your own wife. Go enjoy one another. Verses 18 and 19. This might make some of you really uncomfortable. But verses 18 and 19 are actually a prayer. (laughs) It's a prayer of blessing. Asking God to give this couple delight in their sexual union. And what, beloved, what I so appreciate about the approach of this chapter and why, why I chose to preach this chapter when talking about this subject is the beautiful balance that it uses in addressing this subject. Because it shows us here both the negatives and the positives. It gives both the warning and the encouragement. It shows us both the ugliness of departing the design and the beauty in keeping the design. This chapter is truly aimed at giving us wisdom, giving us skill for living when it comes to this issue of our sexual desires. And the approach of this chapter, the flow of this chapter, both the the warnings against immorality and the praise of marital love, it it actually stands, I think, as a powerful guideline, as an important template, as a key paradigm for us who are the church. You see, and why I say this, because we're often so good at saying what we're against, right? We speak against immorality and against adultery and against homosexuality and pornography and the rampant lusts that are, are just filling our culture. But too often, we're good at speaking against those things, but too often we struggle to stand up and boldly say, those things, they're just empty counterfeits. They're just hollow shells when compared to the the real deal. We're really good at speaking against sex, but we're not very good at speaking for it. And that's tragic. Because the Bible doesn't shy away from speaking for it. Sex is very much a part of our lives, and it's very much something then that the Bible addresses. And the Bible is extremely sex positive. I'll be real honest with you. The Bible rightly understood doesn't shy away from saying things that will make you blush. And here, look at this, brothers and sisters. Here we have a father speaking directly and clearly with his son about the delights of marital sex. Now, some of you dads, some of you parents, you shy away from even having the birds and the bees talk with your kids. And so what do you do? Well, you leave it to the school health class to teach them about that. And then you leave it to movies and music and culture to shape their understanding of sex. No wonder the kids in our culture, both outside the church and inside the church, are so confused when it comes to God's design and his gift of sex. Talk about it. Or we talk about it just in a negative way. We look at the text, this father and our heavenly father is far from silent. Here he paints the blessing of marital sex with beautiful imagery. He describes it as thirst quenching water. Repeatedly there in verses 15 and 16, that imagery is used. And the imagery of water is being used here because sexual desire is like thirst. It is a natural Normal, God-given desire. It's not something wrong. It's not something shameful. It's not something inappropriate. 
Now, the fall has corrupted and polluted both how we pursue that desire and how we think about it. But the desire in and of itself is not wrong. It's as normal as natural thirst. But just like natural thirst, you need to satisfy it with the right kind of water. You go and try to drink a gallon of salt water on a hot day, and you're going to find yourself in bad shape. You go and drink from the public fountain. You go guzzle water from the community wishing well where people throwing their dirty coins and washing their dirty feet. And guess what? You're probably going to end up sick. And that's actually the contrast being painted here. The father describes this son's sexual union with his wife as drinking water from his own cistern in his own well. And he does so because homes in that culture, they either had a cistern for collecting rainwater or a well from which they draw water. And that was the place where you'd find the very best water. It was the place provided for you to quench your thirst. And so the father is saying, go and enjoy the refreshing water where God has provided it for you there in your own home. Then look at the text here. This poetic couplet to this poetic couplet, he adds this description flowing water. And that that speaks both of the purity and the abundance of the water. This sexual union between a husband and wife is to be like drinking flowing water from a spring. It is pure. It is refreshing. It is free of guilt. It is satisfying. And it's those things, not because of the sexual prowess of the couple. It's those things because it's within God's good design. The husband and wife are satisfying their thirst where they were made to satisfy their thirst. And that's the union that God blesses. That's why the father prays this prayer for marital delight in verses 18 and 19. He prays that the son would always delight himself and his wife. He prays that this couple would always find delight in one another. And I, and I say that because that's the right way to read the text here. When the father says, rejoice in the wife of your youth, he's not saying, delight yourself in your young wife. That's not what he's saying here. Instead, it's really a call to always find your sexual delight, your satisfaction in your spouse. So whether you're both 22 or 42 or 62 or 82, the source of sexual satisfaction and delight is to be the same. It's to be in your spouse. It's in physical, sexual intimacy with the spouse that God gave you. It's their body that should delight you. And it's in their love that you should always be intoxicated. And when you stop and you really slow down and you think about this, this wonderful little prayer here exposes the folly of Hollywood and Madison Avenue. And what I mean by that is that they tell us through movies and marketing, what? They tell us that true sexual delight and real pleasure is only found, is only available to the young, right? Youthful bodies, right? That's what's presented as the only bodies that are sexually attractive and appealing. And what happens, that comes from Hollywood, that comes from Madison Avenue, and both men and women embrace that lie. We all buy the lie that that's what we should desire. Youth is what we should desire. And so then if we don't look that way, or if our spouse doesn't look that way, then we believe that our sex life won't be satisfying. And so then that lie becomes the source of shame. It becomes the source of lust. It becomes the source of hurt. But here, 
brothers and sisters, you need to understand this. The Bible is shouting to us over that lie. That's not true. <laughs> Don't believe that garbage. Rejoice. Where does it say? Look at the text. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Your spouse. A lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast, her body fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. The Bible here is giving us this explicit call to find delight where we were made to find our delight. Sex was made for a husband and a wife. Can I get an amen on that one? Sex was made for a husband and a wife. And it's only in that relationship, no matter your age, that true sexual enjoyment and fulfillment will be found. And I say that because that's God's design. That's God's design. And God's design is wonderful. And it's intoxicating. And it's liberating. It's liberating. But what's not liberating is turning from that design to pursue the counterfeit. And we see that as we come to the final appeal of this father to his son. So far, this father has warned his son against the deceptive way of the forbidden, and then he has praised the delightful way of marital love. But in the final verses of this chapter, his father calls his son to make a choice. He calls him what I'll call the decisive way. The decisive way. Look at verse 20. It begins with this word, why? Why? And here what the father's doing is he's asking this key question. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? And what he's doing here is he's putting the question to his son. Okay, we've talked about this. I'm putting the question to you. Why, in light of all the dangers in the forbidden, and why, in light of all the delight of marital love, why would you abandon God's good design? Why? And here's the thing, brothers and sisters. We, like this son, might come up with all kinds of responses to that question. All kinds of rationalizations and justifications and excuses for our approach to our sexual desires. We might say, well, Ryan, you don't understand, my marriage isn't like that. Or I don't have a spouse yet. Or anymore. Or you don't know my wife. Or you don't have to live with my husband. We might say things like, well, I don't feel like I can wait until marriage. I didn't wait until marriage. So what's the point now? We might come up with a myriad of responses to this father's why question. But here's the thing. Before we rush to give our answers, let's look at where this father goes next. Look at verse 21. For a man's ways are, what does he say? Verse 21. For a man's ways are what? Before the eyes of the Lord. And he ponders all his paths. Here what the father's doing is he's bringing his son to ground zero in this discussion. And what he does, just like so many times in this book of Proverbs, he brings him back to the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. And see, here's the thing. We can talk on and on about the dangers in departing God's good design and the delight in keeping it. But in the end, it all comes down to this issue of the fear of the Lord. Do you trust God to be God? Do you recognize that he is God 
and you are not? Do you realize that your life is lived before him, before his eyes, and he is the sovereign Lord of all? Do you live out of the fear of the Lord? A holy, humble, respectful awe towards the one who made you and who sustains you and who will ultimately stand in judgment over you. You see, the fear of the Lord is this decisive path that we must walk down if we are going to truly pursue sexual wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, right? That's the path we must walk down. It's not just about dangers or delights. It's about surrendering to the wisdom and the sovereignty of the holy God of the universe. But those who turn from that decisive way have chosen to take the way, the the path of the fool. This chapter closes with these very somber words. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. And he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline. And because of his great folly, he is led astray. If we're being real honest, brothers and sisters, uh, that closing statement describes all of us. That closing statement describes all of us. We have all, in a myriad of ways, ways we can't even remember we've done it so much, in a myriad of ways we have departed God's good design and turned away from his right path. And when it comes to this area of sexual sin, Many of us have sexual sins in our past that continue to weigh on us, continue to bring us shame when we remember them. Many of us have known the crushing guilt of sexual sin. We haven't listened to the Father's good counsel. We've embraced the lie in the garden. We've drank in delusions from movies like Pleasantville. We've followed the folly of our culture. We thought it was best, at least it seemed in the moment, to just let our desires run free. I think if we're honest, we can all find ourselves in the closing words of Proverbs chapter 5. We could all find ourselves there. But by the grace of God, we don't have to. We don't have to. And we don't have to because there is one son who walked the path of wisdom Faithfully and perfectly. He didn't pursue the forbidden. He didn't turn away from the Father's wisdom. Instead, he always walked in the fear of the Lord. He always trusted and obeyed. But as we've already talked about this morning in our time around the Lord's table, he didn't do that just to show us how or even that it's possible. He did because we, he knew that we wouldn't, and we hadn't. He walked the way of wisdom for us. Jesus, our Savior, walked the way of wisdom for us. And now, brothers and sisters, he invites us. He invites us as those who are forgiven by faith in his sacrifice, those who are clothed in his perfect obedience. He invites us to join him in walking this way.
walking this way. He calls us as forgiven sinners, as those who've been loosed from those snares, loosed from those binding cords of sin and of guilt. He calls us to join him. A walk by the power of the spirit that he has given us. Through this book of Proverbs, through this chapter, he calls all of us to walk this way of wisdom for our sexuality. He is showing us here that who we are, every aspect of who we are, matters. There's a way to turn from and a way to follow. There's a way of deception and a way to delight. So will we walk that way of wisdom with Jesus? Will we walk that way of wisdom with Jesus? Will we rest in his grace? Will we receive his forgiveness? Some of those, some of you here, you're still battling with the shame of things in your past. Will you rest in his forgiveness? And all of us, will we trust that our Father, our good Father, has a good design for our desires. And His ways are always best. Sex is a gift. It is a blessing. But it is only a gift and a blessing when we see and follow our Father's good design. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we praise you for who you are. And, and I praise you, and I'm sure many of my brothers and sisters echo this. We praise you for your word. We praise you that you care about all of us. Not just every one of us, but, but all that makes us up as a person. We thank you that, that you would dress the full person in your word. That you don't leave one area of our life uncovered and say, well, you just go figure that out. But even in this topic of sex, a topic that sometimes we feel uncomfortable to talk about, we shy away from, you speak about it clearly. You speak about it boldly. You speak about it with wisdom and grace, with both warning and encouragement. And so we praise you for that. There is none like you, and we thank you for who you have made us to be. We thank you for the gift of marriage that you have given I pray over the marriages here this morning. I pray especially in this area if there are, there are struggles. You would help them to have good conversations. And not just conversations with one another. But conversations before you. That they would be in prayer together. That they would be before your word together. And they would really be seeking your wisdom and your advice. And that they would be walking in trust. And they would be living in grace. I pray for those who are single among us and maybe hear a text like this and think, well, that's nice that there's an answer in marriage, but I'm not there yet. I pray that you would show them the strength, the grace, the power that you give them to continue to walk in obedience and and to be faithful to your design and wait for that time when that design is open to them. And I pray for all of us that we would all come back to this place of really seeing that this is an issue rooted in the fear of the Lord. That it's really about our relationship with you. And us learning to trust you. Us learning to follow you. 
us learning the sufficiency of your grace, us learning the power of your spirit, us learning the blessing of your forgiveness. Thank you for this book of Proverbs and the wisdom, the skill for living that it gives. Help us now by your spirit to trust that wisdom, to take it in, to drink it in, and then to live it out, to trust your way and your power to enable us to walk your way. These things to pray in Jesus' name, amen.